there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By the mid-1960s, the United States was in turmoil. The Vietnam War had torn the country apart, and people began to seek an inner peace they couldn't find from traditional religions. In West Virginia, one such man, an author named Richard Rose Jr., looked out over his family's 1,200-acre plot of sprawling farmland and got an idea. He would find someone to turn the vacant land into a spiritual sanctuary for peoples of all faiths, a multi-theistic commune free from the violence and social unrest dominating the news. Soon, Rose was visited by two eager young men who seemed to share his vision, Keith Ham and Howard Wheeler. Rose agreed to lease them the property. But soon after Keith and Howard moved in with some of their followers, Rose realized things were not as he'd expected. Keith's head was now shaved. He and his partner Howard said their names were Kirtananda Swami and Hayagriva. Their followers were members of the religion Hare Krishna. Rose knew he'd been had. The farmland soon became a Hare Krishna commune, complete with an enormous palace built right in the center of Rose's land. They built a village called New Vrindavan. Hundreds of devotees flocked to this new settlement, ready to follow the man they believed was God incarnate. But Rose knew better. Their beloved leader was a con man, and he had robbed them blind. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we take a look at Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipat and the village he created, New Vrindavan. It was a Hare Krishna community, famous for its vast palace known as America's Taj Mahal, nestled into rural West Virginia. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. The images of Hare Krishna are a familiar one in today's zeitgeist, a movement that promotes vegetarianism, meditation, and leading a spiritual life. Members are easily recognized for their long robes and shaved heads. The Hare Krishna are sometimes lampooned for the once common custom of singing and preaching in airports. 
Today's cult leader grew out of this movement, Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad. Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad became the leader of a large Hare Krishna commune in 1968, but turned his faction into something twisted, diverting from Hare Krishna and creating his own private empire to rule as he saw fit. He manipulated hundreds of followers for nearly 20 years before finally being outed as a pedophile and murderer. After Bhaktipad was removed from power, Hare Krishna retook the commune. Roughly 350 followers still live on the tiny commune Bhaktipad built, nestled into the hills of West Virginia. His crowning achievement, the Palace of Gold, is still a tourist attraction in the area. This week, we'll follow Kirtanananda's rise to power within the Hare Krishna community and his move to create his own private commune. Next week, we'll follow the obscene sexual behavior that got Kirtanananda Bhaktipad into trouble and finally pushed him to murder. The origins of Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad could not be farther from his adopted Hare Krishna identity. He was born Keith Gordon Ham on September 6, 1937, in Peekskill, New York, about 90 minutes north of New York City. He was the fifth and final child of Francis and Marjorie Ham. Francis Gordon Ham was a conservative Baptist minister who was borderline obsessed with his work of preaching the Word of God. Francis preached to several congregations around Peekskill and at home to his own family. He was hardlined in his practice and considered any other sect of Christianity to be pagan. His youngest son, Keith, was predestined for a similar path. Even when Marjorie was pregnant with him, she would say that her unborn son would become a great preacher. The Ham household fully revolved around religion. There was a strict regimen of prayer in their home. No alcohol was ever allowed in the house, and the children were not allowed to believe in Santa Claus. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. A quick reminder, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to marriage and family therapist Dr. Carol McBride, if a loving, nurturing family environment is somehow stifled, the children might have trouble processing emotions. They can have serious problems as adults. In this case, a constant reverence for God was put above the emotional needs of the family. Some of these include emotional disconnect from the needs of others and a lack of accountability for their actions. It may also bring out narcissistic tendencies, such as a lack of empathy in someone like Keith. What didn't help matters was that Francis and Marjorie were obsessed with projecting a well-manicured image to their community. Francis needed to be seen as having unwavering faith and total devotion to the Lord. Marjorie touted Keith as special, a chosen one who was smarter than other kids his age and meant for great things. This fixation with Keith's image would also feed narcissistic tendencies. What others thought of him and how they viewed him became much more important than any kind of emotional connection. He always wanted to be admired as the smartest, most clever boy in the room. As a child, Keith was described as charismatic. He was always eager to talk to strangers and get to know people. He was smart for his age, but would often exaggerate. In grade school, he would sometimes tell people he was already in college. 
According to Dr. Eileen Kennedy Moore with Princeton University, narcissistic children have a strong need to impress others as opposed to connect with them. Keith's mother had only encouraged this behavior, filling his head with the idea that he was chosen by God to become a great preacher. She unwittingly fed his ego, but never his self-esteem. It's possible that because he felt so chosen, he felt zero remorse for manipulating people. Keith's siblings have said that he always had a knack for getting people to do exactly what he wanted. And when he didn't get his way, he would throw violent temper tantrums. Once, a young Keith asked his teenage brother if he could tag along with him on a date. When the brother said no, Keith threw a bottle of milk into the street. Psychologist Dr. Aubrey John writes that whenever someone with narcissistic personality disorder has their sense of entitlement challenged, they grow irrationally angry. Any sense of inferiority will enrage a narcissist because it taps at their most closely held insecurities. Keith Ham took to religion as a very young child, quickly becoming the most devout of the five Ham children. In grade school, he tried to convert some of his classmates to his father's Baptist church. Keith seemed to be a natural preacher. However, it's worth noting that given his strict religious household, Keith could have been somewhat feigning a devotion to God as a way to impress his parents. Either way, in 1952, 15-year-old Keith began what would be a turbulent high school career. He seemed to be constantly sick, though nobody knew from what. He bounced around different hospitals trying to diagnose his illness. As such, he also transferred between different boarding schools frequently. In letters home to his parents, he spoke constantly of a devotion to God and urged his parents to pray for him. It was also around this time that Keith began to realize that he was gay. There are hints of this in letters he sent home to his parents, wherein he would mention fine Christian fellows he met at school that he wanted to bring home for Christmas holiday. But Keith had been raised in a strict Christian household where homosexuality would have been seen as sinful. If Keith identified himself as gay, he could expect to be beaten at the very least, if not disowned. It's possible that Keith was writing about a fervent devotion to God to keep his parents from becoming suspicious. According to Dr. David Lay, director of New Mexico Solutions Substance Abuse Clinic, sexual shame from some religious upbringings can create long-lasting feelings of pain and guilt. And while this may have accounted for some of Keith's later behavior, it's also important to note that he did not repress his sexuality, but rather manipulated his parents so that he would never be caught. Meanwhile, Keith suffered severe complications from his illness in the summer of 1953. While back home for his 17th birthday, Keith was struck with severe paralysis. He was admitted to the Grasslands Hospital in Valhalla, New York, where he was diagnosed with poliomyelitis, more commonly known as polio. Polio is a viral infection which attacks the gray matter around the spinal cord. While Keith was able to recover, he was left with a limp and suffered mobility issues for the rest of his life. The recovery was long and arduous. He was unable to leave home for Stony Brook, his current boarding school. So after Christmas in 1953, he enrolled at Peekskill High School. His mobility was severely limited, and his slow hobbling from class to class earned him sympathy from his classmates. This may have been an important turning point for Keith. The attention he received for recovering from polio gave him an inflated sense of self. Fellow students nominated him for positions in honor society and the debate club. 
this was likely Keith's first taste of being recognized as different by his peers, and he took it as a compliment. Keith became popular and respected amongst his classmates, and soon he drifted from his strict religious upbringing. By 18, the kid who wanted to become a preacher had instead become the life of the party. He began drinking excessively with his friends, despite alcohol being strictly forbidden by his father's church. Keith later said that as he gained more friendships, he began questioning God. He started to doubt his father's rules against drinking, smoking, and sex. He liked drinking. It made him amicable, charming, and numbed deep-seated feelings of shame for being gay. According to psychologist John Bradshaw, shame is a common motivator for addictive behavior. Drinking is commonly used as a way of blocking out feelings that are otherwise hard to deal with. Meanwhile, Keith's father, Gordon, had accepted a new position as pastor of the First Baptist Church in Merrick, Long Island, and moved the family from Peekskill to Long Island. This new position took up a great deal of his time, and he didn't seem to notice Keith's newfound partying habits. This was partially due to the fact that, despite being a teenage delinquent, Keith kept his grades up and excelled at his extracurriculars in school. His parents were likely none the wiser. Keith graduated in 1955 at age 18. His parents hoped he would go to college at Bob Jones University or another fundamentalist Christian institution, but Keith chose Maryville College in Knoxville, Tennessee. It felt like a pointed move. A liberal arts college in the heart of the South is about as far from a Long Island Baptist church as you can get. Maryville was famous for its liberal leanings as it was the first Tennessee college to integrate students of color when it was founded in 1819, and boasted the first female college graduate in Tennessee in 1875. That liberalism likely appealed to Keith, as he was likely looking for a community that would accept him as a gay man. Soon after moving down to college, he and his father had an explosive falling out. But surprisingly, it wasn't because Keith was gay. Instead, Keith was caught smoking in his dorm, Keith's parents were furious and deemed this behavior unacceptable. In response, Keith mailed them a letter, declaring himself independent of them and their religious teachings. The way Keith saw it, it was either his family or the lifestyle he wanted to live. He had already shunned his parents' strict religious teachings. He was willing to shun them as well. Keith started college a new man, completely on his own. And for the first time, it truly felt like he could become anything he had ever wanted. We'll follow the beginnings of a budding cult leader in a moment. Now, back to the story. In 1955, 18-year-old Keith Ham declared independence from his strict religious parents and moved south to Maryville College to pursue an education. There, he also fully accepted himself as a gay man. He worked hard to pave his own way in the world. Keith would rely on his siblings for some financial support, but otherwise put himself through school, where he majored in history. College life suited him. In 1959, 22-year-old Keith graduated magna cum laude, top of his class. Never one to slow down, he began pursuing a master's degree in history the next year at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It was here that Keith met one of the most important people in his life. At a Chapel Hill gay bar, Keith encountered Howard Wheeler, an undergraduate at UNC. 
Howard was born and raised in Pensacola, Florida to strict Roman Catholic parents. Howard said he had realized he was gay at five years old while wrestling with another boy his age. Due to his family's Catholic beliefs, he kept these feelings to himself until he got to college. Keith and Howard quickly became lovers and were inseparable. They bonded over their shared upbringing and a love for drinking. Keith's brother, Gerald, would later label them a pair of wild and crazy guys. But their relationship was not without trouble. In early 1961, when their love affair was discovered by fellow students, they were called to appear before the school board to explain themselves. A romantic relationship between two men was more than enough to cause a scandal at a Southern university in 1961, especially given the deeply religious nature of the South. But Keith and Howard refused to stand before a school board and be reprimanded for their relationship. Instead, they dropped out of school. In July 1962, Keith and Howard moved to New York City. They hoped that in one of the largest, most liberal cities on earth, they could carve out space for their relationship. Keith and Howard settled into the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where they quickly fell into a lifestyle of debauchery. They smoked marijuana, used LSD, and even made beer in their bathtub. They were fiercely non-monogamous, both taking many lovers. They even bribed an attractive young homeless man to live with them, trading drugs for sex. Wanting to complete his studies, Keith entered a program at Columbia University. But for the first time in his life, he didn't excel at school. Instead, his attention was focused on reckless sexual behavior, going so far as to seek out random encounters with anonymous men in public restrooms. Keith's constant need for sex could have been another sign of narcissism. The American Medical Association has reported that narcissists can exhibit reckless sexual behavior and even foster sex addictions. This is linked to a constant need for gratification and a lack of empathy for others. Meanwhile, Howard had gotten a job as a college-level English teacher, a job that would prove fateful for Keith. Howard shared an office with a fellow professor. The two would talk about their relationships, and Howard would occasionally express that he felt his life lacked a higher calling. The co-workers soon began urging Howard to take a vacation to India, his home country, a renowned spiritual center. This idea struck a chord with Howard, who was growing increasingly concerned by Keith's sex addiction. Perhaps a visit to India could provide them both with a sense of purpose. In September of 1965, Keith and Howard hitched a ride on the Indian freighter Jalander. They spent about three months in India searching for answers to philosophical questions. They sought a spiritual awakening and prayed for a guru who could lift them to a higher calling, but found none. At the end of the fall, they were broke and forced to return to New York. But it turned out the guru they were looking for was already in New York City, just a few hundred feet from their apartment. The following July in 1966, Abhai Charanaravinda Swami Prabhupada was preaching his own brand of Hindu teachings at the corner of Bowery and Houston. Before arriving in New York, Prabhupada had been practicing the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition of the Hindu religion, which worshipped the Hindu god Krishna. In the polytheism of Hindu, Krishna was worshipped as both the eighth incarnation of Vishnu and as a supreme god. But after seeing a demand for new spiritual thinking amidst the counterculture of the 1960s, Prabhupada traveled to New York City. 
the 70-year-old guru endeavored to create a new religion that would resonate with the spiritually bankrupt youth who were searching for a higher purpose. This new religion was called the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Believers referred to this group as ISKCON, but the members of the group were commonly known as Hare Krishnas. The name came from the mantra that members regularly sing and chant, repeating the holy names of God. ISKCON focused on spreading awareness of Krishna. They worked to build temples dedicated to the worship of Krishna and publish the teachings of Hare Krishna. They sold these published manuscripts to financially and spiritually support the organization. Adherence to ISKCON teachings promised spiritual clarity. In order to achieve spiritual clarity and grow closer to Krishna, members must live by four regulative principles. No meat consumption, no intoxicants, no gambling, and no illicit sex. Sex was only allowed between married couples for the sole purpose of procreation. Women in Hare Krishna were very much in a subservient role. Author Vraja Kishore once quoted Prabhupada as saying, women are not very intelligent and are not trustworthy. Women were regulated to the back of the temple during worship and given duties secondary to those of the men. Male Hare Krishna are expected to shave their heads but retain a small ponytail as a sign of their renunciation of the world they're leaving behind. There's no formal dress code, but most members wear traditional robes and saris as a further sign of devotion and spiritual purity. According to the Cult Information Center, many religions suggest a dress code to help remove the member's individuality. This is common in tight-knit religious communities across the board, from Buddhist monks to Orthodox Judaism to the rock band Polyphonic Spree. While the religion Hare Krishna did not have an official dress code per se, the effect was in many ways the same. Renounce your individual needs for that of the Supreme Krishna. Additionally, new Sanskrit identities were assigned to members by Prabhupada as further renunciation of the world they were leaving behind. This left Prabhupada with a wide-open recruitment pool of young, lost souls looking to find their way in the world. With the Vietnam War raging, Prabhupada found numerous individuals in the hippie movement who were not only open to his way of thinking, but were hungry for it. The youth of the late 1960s were not finding the answers they sought from established institutions, such as religion and government. Prabhupada's message of peace through Krishna held great appeal. Howard Wheeler was one such youth. In the summer of 1966, he was desperate for a teacher to guide him to a deeper understanding of the world. Howard began attending Prabhupada's classes, and he brought Keith along with him. Despite the wildly hedonistic lifestyle of the past few years, Keith instantly took to Prabhupada's teachings. As he said in later interviews, quote, the life of drugs would be, you get high, but you come down. The spiritual high of Hare Krishna meant you go up and up and up and stay high forever, end quote. Keith and Howard were both personally taught by Prabhupada in the ways of Hare Krishna. Prabhupada even taught Keith to cook vegetarian Indian cuisine. Both were given new names as they officially joined ISKCON. Keith would be known as Kirtanananda, while Howard became Hayagriva. Keith, now known as Kirtanananda, was a sponge for Prabhupada's teachings. His high intelligence and background in strict religious doctrine helped him become a star pupil, standing out from the rest of the class. Prabhupada quickly took him on as a right-hand man and trusted friend. In May of 1967, 
Prabhupada suffered a severe stroke. He would take Kirtanananda back with him to India to help him recover. In August of 1967, in the Indian city of Vrindavan, Prabhupada would elevate Keith even further in the order by making him Kirtanananda Swami. The term Swami in Hinduism refers to a yogi or teacher. This elevation firmly established Kirtanananda as a leader of the Hare Krishna movement. This was a high honor for Kirtanananda, who within one year had skyrocketed to near the top of this new order. But his persistent health issues would soon have him laid up again. Prabhupada ordered Kirtanananda to travel to London to set up a new ISKCON temple there. He saw similar opportunities for recruitment in the UK as he did in the US. But those plans didn't line up with Kirtanananda's. He disobeyed Prabhupada and went back home to New York. It's a fair guess that Kirtanananda had issues with authority. He challenged his father's religion. He refused to be brought before the University of North Carolina School Board for his alleged sexual impropriety. On this latest spiritual path, he disobeyed the spiritual mentor who took him under his wing. It's clear from his history that Kirtanananda Swami only answered to himself and actively looked for opportunities to step into a role of authority. Kirtanananda returned to the Hare Krishna in New York. He told them their founder was near death, and the order now was to follow the lead of his brightest student, Kirtanananda. Kirtanananda had clearly been planning a maneuver like this for some time. He saw a new organization with a fervent following still finding their way. It was ripe for someone like him to swoop in and become their leader. But Kirtanananda's power grab was premature. The New York Hare Krishna never believed his version of events and didn't follow him. They wrote letters to Prabhupada explaining what happened. The ISKCON founder quickly denounced Kirtanananda's coup and even categorized him as a crazy man. Kirtanananda found himself expelled from ISKCON. Despite being in order seeking peace, the New York Hare Krishna were furious with Kirtanananda. There are reports that he was literally thrown out of ISKCON headquarters and spat upon by other members. However, Kirtanananda was not finished yet. In fact, his greatest move for power was still on the horizon. We'll see the crafty way Kirtanananda seizes power after this. Now back to the story. After his failed coup in 1967, 30-year-old Kirtanananda was expelled from ISKCON, but that wouldn't be the last they'd hear of Keith Ham. He started sending letters to the ISKCON members who banished him, using stationery for a new organization he called the First United Church of Krishna Youth Organization Underground. The initials were F-U-C-K-Y-O-U. This type of scorched earth behavior is typical of narcissists. People like Kirtanananda need constant adulation, which he had spent the past few years getting from the members of ISKCON. But now they had embarrassed him. According to Dr. Aubrey John in an article for Livestrong, when a narcissist incurs a blow to their self-esteem, they grow enraged and tend to retaliate. Amidst the drama, Kirtanananda's partner Howard, now known as Hayagriva, stayed loyal to him. When Kirtanananda was expelled from ISKCON, Hayagriva was teaching English at a community college in the Pennsylvania town of Wilkes Bar. With few prospects left in New York, Kirtanananda soon joined Hayagriva. 
And so he moved down to Pennsylvania, confident that he had rattled Iskon's cage and that the group would falter in his absence. But if being shunned from the group had been enough to enrage Kirtan Ananda, one can only imagine the temper that erupted once Keith Ham realized that in his absence, Iskon had only grown. Official membership statistics don't exist for the Hare Krishna. Even the modern websites only give vague figures instead of exact numbers. However, in 1967, temples were opened in London and San Francisco, with membership growing by the thousands. The movement grew so large that it even attracted the attention of the biggest musical act in the world, the Beatles. George Harrison had famously developed a great interest in Hare Krishna. It's even been reported that Harrison spoke the Hare Krishna chant when a flight he was on had lost control and nearly crashed in 1967. And while his former cult was reaching new heights of fame, Kirtan Ananda was banished to suburban Pennsylvania to lick his wounds. Then, a year later, he saw a letter from author Richard Rose Jr. published in the San Francisco Chronicle. In March of 1968, Kirtan Ananda and his partner Hayagriva took a road trip, pursuing the advertisement they had seen in the paper. It offered land in West Virginia for anyone willing to settle it. Richard Rose Jr. dreamt of turning the 1,200-acre patch of land into a center for people from every religion to worship, commune, and find peace. He was willing to lease the land to anyone who could fulfill his dream. Kirtan Ananda thought he just might be such a man. The pair arrived at Rose's farmlands in Moundsville, West Virginia, and found paradise. Idyllic hillsides surrounded by lush forests. It was perfect. Kirtan Ananda knew the land would be easily won, so long as he duped Rose into signing it over. He and Hayagriva introduced themselves as Keith and Howard, two best friends intent on carrying out Rose's wishes. Eventually, Rose leased the land to Keith and Howard, never suspecting the circus act that would soon move into town. Before the ink was dry, Kirtan Ananda was on the phone with his old guru, Prabhupada. Prabhupada wasn't exactly thrilled to hear from his former pupil, given the attempted coup d'etat just a year earlier, but Kirtan Ananda had an offer too enticing to resist. Prabhupada set up a meeting. In July of 1968, Kirtan Ananda and Hayagriva ventured to Montreal, where Prabhupada had been living and teaching. There, Kirtan Ananda and Hayagriva were remiss to find that Prabhupada would not meet with them before they both groveled profusely apologizing for their indiscretions the previous summer. And while it nearly killed Kirtan Ananda to do so, he apologized. For Keith, the most important thing in any relationship was maintaining control. According to Dr. Preston Mee, emotional manipulation is oftentimes a means to an end with narcissists. Keith was willing to grovel so that Prabhupada would think him benevolent and worthy of trust. It was then that Kirtan Ananda revealed his plan to build a Hare Krishna sanctuary on the Rose farmland in Prabhupada's name. He asked for ISKCON assistance in building this sanctuary, which he said would secure Prabhupada's legacy. Prabhupada likely saw through Keith's overzealous flatter, but that didn't mean he was turned off to the idea. He knew that the land Keith was trying to settle would bring legitimacy and money to his religion. Eventually, he embraced his former follower and welcomed both Keith and Howard back into the fold. 
He urged the other members of Hare Krishna to offer the same forgiveness. And while many of Prabhupada's followers were skeptical, they found themselves bound to contrition. Compassion was a tenet of the spiritual nirvana they were seeking, so there was little to be done. Prabhupada bestowed upon Keith the honorific title Maharaja, or Prince, and placed him in charge of the new venture. Kirtanananda Maharaja and Prabhupada were happy to use one another to further their own agendas. Prabhupada signed on to the 99-year lease for Richard Rose Jr.'s farm. Kirtanananda and Hayagriva soon returned to West Virginia alongside a handful of devotees who were thrilled to help their new Maharaja build a spiritual sanctuary. But soon after their arrival, Richard Rose stopped by to see how the new sanctuary was coming along. He was surprised to see Keith with a freshly shaved head. Kirtanananda greeted Rose with the words, Hare Krishna. Rose quickly realized that everyone on his land was Hare Krishna. He was furious. He had only leased the land on the condition that the sanctuary would never be monotheistic. Keith tried to charm his way out of it by assuring Rose that Hare Krishna was every religion and the first religion wrapped into one faith. But that didn't go over as smoothly as Keith would have liked. Rose threatened to contact his lawyers. But Kirtanananda shrugged and said... Ours are better. Prabhupada sent both longtime followers and new recruits to help bring the sanctuary, New Vrindavan, to life. Prabhupada was eager to show Iskan off to the world. So much so that he ordered his followers to obey Kirtanananda in all things, in the hopes that a monarchy would move construction along a little faster. All things considered, Kirtanananda had enjoyed a miraculous comeback. In just two years, the prodigal son was now prince of his own spiritual center. Among his subjects were those that he had harassed via mail just two years before. Now they were ordered to obey him. Nuvrindaban took shape over the course of 1969 and into the early 1970s. Several dozen Krishna devotees joined Kirtanananda in West Virginia. They built several farms in the 1,200-acre commune. The work to toil the land and irrigate with their own water as they built shelter was long and arduous, but the community worked together. In later years, Kirtanananda would say this was the most content lifestyle he ever had. As a child, Keith's family had owned a small farm and sold chickens, so he likely enjoyed the simplistic lifestyle on the commune. It felt like home. And as time passed, the devotees on the campus began to respect Kirtanananda's preaching and truly forgave him for his past transgressions. They found themselves drawn to him. Kirtanananda's father had been a preacher, and his son was no different. Keith spoke constantly about his love for Krishna and Prabhupada. Other followers began going to Kirtanananda for leadership on how to become closer to Krishna, and they began to see him as Krishna's mouthpiece. Plus, Prabhupada loved Kirtanananda. It stood to reason then that if Kirtanananda was happy, Prabhupada was happy. This was a clear line of succession. Please Kirtanananda and you'll please both Prabhupada and Krishna. The followers began conditioning themselves to follow Keith and obey his every whim. Plus, given the distance between West Virginia and Prabhupada, Kirtanananda's control quickly became absolute. The devotees had built Kirtanananda's private empire, and he was quick to reward his followers, particularly his boyfriend. 
In the early days, Kirtan Ananda gave Hayagriva an esteemed position as community president. He also served as editor for Prabhupada's books. But by the early 70s, he grew lax in his duties. He would openly engage in affairs with several of the migrant workers who were hired to help tend the grounds, a direct violation of the vow of celibacy that was a central tenant to Hare Krishna. Devotees would report this behavior to Kirtanananda, who told them that Hayagriva grew up a spoiled child and had a hard time disciplining his senses. For that reason, they should ignore his indiscretions. The devotees accepted this. Kirtanananda was a gentle ruler. He spoke softly with compassion and wore a welcoming smile. They never suspected that all the while, the two were carrying on an affair behind the devotees' backs. In 1972, Kirtan Ananda made a proposal that would cement his place as Prabhupada's favorite. He proposed building a massive palace for Prabhupada at New Vrindavan. It would be the largest temple outside of India, worthy of their founder's great work, but also a spectacle to draw new recruits to Hare Krishna. Prabhupada was thrilled. The plan to build Prabhupada's palace was ambitious, to say the least. It would take seven years to complete and would be phenomenally expensive. In fact, it would cost far more than the Hare Krishna could afford. But Keith had a plan for fundraising. They would perform Sankirtan, the Hare Krishna practice of singing, dancing, and chanting in public places. The aim would be to get people's attention and then have them inquire as to what the Hare Krishna were all about. This could lead to both the distribution of pamphlets and the collection of funds. Hare Krishna would also sell books by Prabhupada and other leaders. But while these efforts raised some money, they needed a lot more. Devotees donated their salaries and free labor to the palace project. When Kirtan Ananda saw this level of devotion, he must have known that he could control them to do anything. But before construction could begin in earnest, the devotees of New Vrindavan were presented with a different challenge. New Vrindavan was located in the Bible Belt. Some of the more intolerant members of nearby Christian communities, let it be known, the Hare Krishna were not welcome there. In the early morning of June 5th, 1973, gunshots echoed around New Vrindavan. A motorcycle gang tore through the compound, shooting three followers until they finally found Kirtan Ananda. They called him Chief Pinhead and at gunpoint led him up to the tallest hill on New Vrindavan. They beat him with the butts of the gun and forced Kirtan Ananda to dig a hole, which was to serve as his own grave. But Kirtan Ananda was saved by divine intervention. Local police cruisers who had been called by the terrified devotees broke up the fight. The motorcycle gang left in a hurry, but the message was clear. New Vrindavan was in danger. After the attack, Kirtan Ananda wrote a letter to Prabhupada asking for guidance. The response he received left no room for interpretation. Prabhupada wrote, quote, We are not the followers of Gandhi's philosophy. Ours began in the fields of war. If somebody attacks you, you must defend yourself as best you can. End quote. It was war. Kirtan Ananda now needed a soldier. He found one in a new devotee named Thomas Drescher, later given the name Tirta. Drescher had military experience and served in Vietnam, in his words, as a trained killer. 
But after Vietnam, he felt lost without a higher calling. He gravitated towards Hare Krishna and by 1973 found himself a new resident at New Vrindavan. Keith Ham quickly realized that Drescher's military training could be put to use. He became the enforcer for the Hare Krishna compound. Guns and ammunition were purchased. Thomas Drescher trained numerous devotees in how to use them and how to protect themselves. While the local harassment would flare up from time to time, it was usually more annoying than serious. And the followers now felt they could defend themselves. They confidently continued construction on the palace as more devotees moved onto the campus. By the mid-1970s, their numbers swelled to several hundred followers. Meanwhile, Prabhupada would not live to see his palace completed. On November 14, 1977, Prabhupada passed away in the original Vrindavan in Vrindavan, India. There are rumors that he was poisoned by followers who wanted to take his place. As with many religions, when a founding leader dies, a power vacuum forms. In his will, Prabhupada left the matter of succession up to the governing commission of ISKCON and named the 12 followers who should hold the esteemed position of initiating gurus, including Kirtan Ananda. But his will hadn't made it explicitly clear who would run ISKCON. The other named followers saw this as a shared position, an even distribution of power, but nobody was sure who should be responsible for what. Then, just a few months later, in January 1978, Francis Gordon Ham, Kirtan Ananda's estranged father, passed away. Kirtan Ananda had lost both father figures in a matter of months. It was a blow that he hadn't been expecting. For the first time in years, Kirtan Ananda felt adrift. His father figures were gone. ISKCON leadership was in disarray. Nobody was taking charge. It was then that Kirtan Ananda realized he had no intention of sharing power. He wanted to be seen as Prabhupada's successor, and he knew just how to do it, through equity. He would make himself indispensable. He quickly established a new power structure within New Vrindavan, which put him in the position of the supreme leader. And feeling he had nobody to answer to, he decided to test the boundaries of his power. He gave in to a dark, twisted urge that had long been brewing inside him. Kirtan Ananda ordered two 11-year-old boys into his personal shower and watched them bathe together. They obeyed without question. There were no consequences, and Kirtan Ananda realized he could use the children on his commune however he wanted. Meanwhile, Kirtan Ananda ordered that construction of the Palace of Gold continue, saying it would become a memorial to Prabhupada, though he was likely eyeing it as his own personal residence. He also came up with a brilliant marketing strategy. They would market the palace as a tourist attraction. Potential recruits would drive right onto the property, and if they liked the Hare Krishna way of life, never leave. In 1979, the Palace of Gold was complete. It was ISKCON's crown jewel, and Kirtan Ananda took all the credit. In March, the ISKCON governing board gave Kirtan Ananda the honorific title of Bhaktipat, which is how he would later be referred to by his devotees and within the mass media. Kirtan Ananda Maharaja Bhaktipad. Quite the title for a man who started life as Keith Ham. From that moment on, while he was not the official leader of ISKCON, he became the new public face for Hare Krishna leadership. 
Opening festivities for the palace garnered national media coverage. It was called America's Taj Mahal. It was a massive, ornate palace, blue and gold, with impossibly intricate mosaic work and gorgeous stained glass windows. The massive structure had cost $600,000 to build, around $2.1 million today. Bhaktipad reveled in the attention he got from being the leader of this massive palace. He happily spoke to TV reporters with ready-made sound bites. He would say that Hare Krishna was a largely misunderstood religion and welcomed those curious to come check out the campus. But behind closed doors, this charismatic leader was quickly becoming a monster. In December 1979, a Hare Krishna child living at New Vrindavan would proudly tell his mother that Bhaktipad had chosen him for a great honor and had touched his private parts. His mother dismissed the story as nonsense. After all, Bhaktipad was the holiest guru of God, to be obeyed and revered in all things. It was this mentality that would keep the followers of New Vrindavan under his control for the better part of the next decade. From the outside, the next seven years would be seen as the golden age of New Vrindavan. But within the palace walls, things were far from golden. Next week, as Bhaktipad rules over his new empire, he will be plagued by rumors of pedophilia, drug and alcohol use, and sexual assault. And in a last-ditch attempt to secure his power over New Vrindavan, he would resort to cold-blooded murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two of Kirtanananda Swami Bhaktipad next Tuesday. You can find more episodes of Cults as well as all of Parcast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tim Davis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.